When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm James Gray of the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk and we'll be taking you through this week's tennis, next week's tennis and a few things in between over the next hour or so. I'm, of course, joined as always by Metro.co.uk's. I think I can still call you that, George. Just about. Just about. It's soon to be someone else's property, George Belshaw. How are you? I'm good. I'm pretty tired because my... Yeah, this is going to sound a bit silly, but my Google Maps on my bike took me the most ridiculously long way home. And normally, I, I know the way home, obviously. I just right. take a few different routes to try and mix it up a bit. And I was kind of going along. I was trying to go the fast route in my head. And yeah. the Maps was like giving me this really long route. I was like, I know this isn't right, but I'm really intrigued to see where you're going to take me <laughs> that interest. And obviously... I don't know if you've seen the American office, George, when Michael Scott drives into a lake because <laughs> it. But I'm imagining you like cycling into a canal because Google Maps said go this way. It didn't quite go that far, but it it did add on another twenty-five minutes to my journey. And <laughs> that's so much. Yeah. I was pretty I was going quite quick because I wanted to get home quickly. Right. And I kind of was like, I have no reason to get home quickly. I may as well just extend this. But I'm tired now. I can only recommend using a different app. City Mapper or Commute is very good as well. I can get behind. Um, and of course, the third man in the room uh, rarely gets lost because he doesn't leave his bedroom. And who blames him? Uh, tennis coach Calvin Bettel. Calvin, how are you? Uh, very well, very well. Um, yeah, n- nothing as exciting to report as George has just. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll be gutted by the death of. Uh, Charlie Watts. I've just seen it, yeah. Devastating news, isn't it? Um, mm. So yeah, sad I mean, he was, as far as I tell, and you know, I, you know, the man's barely cold, so I'll, I'll be as nice about this as I can. But he was quite old, and he was in the Rolling Stones. Like, yeah, he's the oldest one, but I think he lived life less than any of the other Stones. To be fair, I see. But, okay. Um, there was, I remember reading a funny story actually, not so long ago, a couple of months ago, about from Charlie Watts's wife that she said when they met. Um, he told her that he was in a band and she kind of thought, all oh, right, well, you know, he can do that for maybe another 18 months and then I'll make him get a proper job. And that was <laughs> in, like, I think, 1961. Right. And, um, he's kept it for about 70 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, sad day, sad news. I'm, I'm sure that his lead singer will find some way of making money out of it. Um, <laughs> the, the tour will roll on, I assume. Yeah, almost certainly. The tour always rolls on. It's true in music and it's true in tennis as well. There's plenty for us to get through this week. We'll talk about Cincinnati, where it was certainly eventful. Um, We'll discuss that Naomi Osaka press conference. Uh, Who is Jill Teichman? I've just written that down as a general note. Um, Daniil Medvedev kicking a TV camera. Alexander Zverev's repeated and frustrating good form. Uh, and we'll also look ahead to the US Open uh, if anyone is bothering to play it uh, with more withdrawals this week uh, from the top 10. We'll also have a bit of a chat about Eber Raducanu, Nick Kyrgios, and we'll tee up fantasy tennis, which I know lots of you will be excited about returning this week. Uh, we'll also do, incidentally, a little bonus pod, hopefully on Sunday, ahead of the US Open to, to preview our teams. But let's start with the biggest tennis news of the week, or maybe not even news, who knows, the biggest tennis story of the week surrounding Naomi Osaka. She returned to press conferences, things that she has openly and publicly said that she doesn't like doing, that she finds difficult. She did press in Japan at the Olympics, but really just kind of mixed zone press, you know, going to, to TV cameras or huddles of written journalists, not the kind of formal press conferences that we're used to seeing on tour. Uh, And her very first one back in Cincinnati was fraught is the only word I can use to describe it. Let me just kind of establish the facts on this. If people don't know exactly what went on, I know for some people this will be going over old ground. But basically, 
She was asked a question by Paul Doherty, uh, a sports columnist from the, the Cincinnati Enquirer, so one of the local journalists there. He's a guy who, uh, by his Twitter profile, likes to provoke honesty and always has the backs of the fans. I'm kind of always very suspicious of anyone who sets themselves up like that. Um, but he asked a question uh, of Osaka about the kind of difficulty and the the kind of awkward balance of saying that you don't like dealing with the press while also being someone part of whose career and livelihood comes from the press. And, and he asked it a couple of different ways. Um, and Naomi, to her credit, gave a, a kind of lengthy and considered answer, one that Doherty in his column the next day said was pretty remarkable for someone so young in terms of its kind of um, the way she thought about it and, and her kind of introspection and, and ability to analyse her own life. Um, but then as the next question was being asked, she, she kind of started to break down and eventually was crying and, and took a moment away. And again, to her credit, came back and finished a press conference in English and then did her Japanese section as well. Q Media Storm. Uh, her agent, Stuart Duguid, came out and said, the bully at the Cincinnati Enquirer is the epitome of why player media relations are so fraught right now. Everyone on that Zoom will agree that his tone was all wrong. His sole purpose was to intimidate. George, I think that's a good place to kind of jump in on. Did everyone on that Zoom agree that his tone was all wrong? I know you spoke to a few people who were. Um, no, I don't, I don't think they did all agree with that. Um, did anyone agree with that? It's a good question. I mean, I mean, I know lots of our listeners will agree with that. Well, because we'll, we've now seen as the, the clip has now gone around the world, lots of them will have seen it and heard it. And I think a lot of them will say, yes, his tone was wrong and he was trying to intimidate her. Yeah. I mean, there's perhaps questions on the tone and, you know, whether that question should have been in that first conference is. A fair, you know, fair question to put forward. Um, I mean, it was initially billed as aggressive um, by a very, uh, you know, well-followed tennis journalist who then backtracked on that. Uh, well, Ben Rothenberg in the New York Times, like we can say him, like it's not a secret. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean that 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 in itself sparked quite a lot of stories. That kind of aggressive before the cliff had kind of gone round. My personal opinion was it wasn't aggressive. I. I I kind of view this in two ways. I think I think in in normal circumstances, that line of questioning is totally fair. The way he asked it is totally fair. Um, but you might consider the extra context that kind of comes with this particular press conference, and perhaps um, have taken a, a slightly different approach. I, I think one of the things that hasn't really been reported is that. Like, the report didn't have his camera on as well, which I think does make a big difference. I yeah. don't know about you, but I think if you've got kind of facial expressions rather than being this black screen um, asking right. a question from the void. Um, so, so I just think there are a few things that it's not necessarily to say he was wrong. He's terrible. Burnham at the stake, but there were things that could have been done better. Uh, certainly. But I, I also, um, you know, I've spoken to, some people on Naomi's team as well this week um, on a separate thing and did, did discuss this and that uh, those comments from the agent have been stood by. Um, so it wasn't just a heat of the moment reaction. That's how he kind of, um, yeah, he stands by that. Um, I personally thought it was a little bit strong, but I can understand, you know, from his perspective and from many people's perspectives, I imagine that it, it was perhaps heavily handled and could have been done in a more friendly, better way without a black screen. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just to kind of pick you up on what, what Stuart said, and people will know Stuart a little bit better from having seen the Naomi Osaka documentary, which we obviously watched last week, and we'll be a little bit more familiar with him. And, and Calvin, you, you know a lot of these guys and some people who work with some very high-profile uh, sports personalities. It is their job to go into bat for these guys, isn't it? Even if that's not what they think, it is their job to kind of be very partisan and be quite strong because the athlete themselves can't take that line. Is that right? Yeah, they'll do that, I think. And they always have to maintain a relationship with the player. Um, so that even if they don't agree with it, that's what they'll, they'll definitely always stand by the player. There's no question about that. Um, I think all in my view, all that it really highlighted was what a complex situation this is. I, I don't think the question was too aggressive. 
And I don't think she answered it like it was too aggressive. I thought it was a reasonable question and I thought she answered it really well. And then it just showed that there was a, a delayed reaction to it where she kind of broke down a bit in the middle of what was actually a tennis question, um, yeah. ironically. Because um, when I when I was watching it, I knew what would what had happened because I'd heard about it. But I didn't think that was the question that would must have made her break down because she answered it so with such clarity and so eloquently. And then when I saw when I seen that the next person was asking who was Courtney and Gwen, I think Courtney Gwen, yeah. Um, and I thought, oh, this is strange. I can't imagine that she's going to ask a really tough question. Yeah, Courtney that's... works works for WTA, and she, you know, yeah. she she works on the inside, if you like, literally. Yeah. Inside, yeah. And she asked the tennis question, and then I thought oh, it must be the one after this. And then, uh, of course, the could just started breaking down. But uh, it, it's a bit of a concern. She wonder like where it goes from here. Like, if I, can she go into another one now? And like, it's only going to the holes only going to dig deeper. Of of like somebody's going to ask another one of these questions. Although I do think maybe like, is there much in this now? Like, it's, it's probably just going to get a bit boring if people just keep asking. If if the questions to her are just how she's dealing with the media, it's just going to be a bit boring every time, isn't it? Like, but I don't. The, the weird thing is though, it's like she seems to. The initial question seemed to be that she doesn't want to be asked about her tennis either. When when the original thing came about in the French Open, so it's like, right, what what can we actually ask about now? Because she initially didn't want to do press conference because she didn't want to talk to the media about her tennis. And now she doesn't want to talk about the media about the media. So I don't know. It's so complex. Where does it go for me? You raised... Um, God, I've just completely lost my train of thought. What was I going to say there? Hang on one second. I'm going to... In podcasting from George Belshaw, two days away from not being a professional journalist anymore. He's already, he's already clocked oh, out. I've just remembered. I've just remembered. Very good. Um, you... Yeah, it was funny kind of speaking to uh behind the scenes about one of one thing that was really well put from their side to me was that the idea that naomi actually really wants to answer every single question properly yeah like some athletes kind of come in and they'll say you know uh, there's that nfl player isn't there who just says i'm coming here not to be fined um I'm just i'm just here so i don't get fined my sean lynch yeah yeah, yeah. Um, who incidentally um, Osaka posted a video of when right at the beginning of all this yeah. she was one of the people he was one of the people she posted a video of and I was, I was going to say in more of a tennis world you might look at Venus and kind of latterly Serena who have come in and, and other players I'm not just picking those yeah. out comparable big names who've come in in tennis who've kind of decided I, on certain days I don't want to answer questions I'm going to come here, I'm going to answer I'm going to block it back and to be fair, as Calvin said, you know, she answered the question really well um, and, and she's disgusted after being like, I don't understand why this kind of made me so upset um, and yeah, to kind of pick up on Calvin's <clears throat> question, where does this go next, I mean I, I really think the US Open is so fascinating from a perspective of where this story goes now because realistically six months ago US Open Naomi Osaka for me is as big a favorite as Djokovic is now in terms of coming into this slam yeah but this what's happened at the Olympics what's happened in Cincinnati you know she said herself I'm glad this has happened before the US Open that she's you know had this bad loss that she struggled with the media she's kind of getting back into it she's getting the rust off but It'll be really interesting to see how, in inverted commas, she kind of handles this new dimension that she's brought upon herself. And, and, and the acceptance from her team is, okay, six months ago, there was never a bad word written about it. They, they openly acknowledge that. The, the dynamic has changed so much. I'm not saying it should have changed for what has happened, but there's no question it has. Mm. And it, it's brought this new kind of ball of kind of confusion and anger in some quarters some idiotic quarters where you know it's just got all het up and it's just gonna be so interesting to see how she handles it because if she comes out and wins the us open i, I kind of feel that's a bit of a line drawn under it to a degree i don't i don't agree i, I think she she's put herself on certain radars and we all know we're talking about Piers morgan here um and, and that's like, that's not going to go away. And I also think that, you know, she's a woman of colour, which I think is relevant. I think that that creates a different image in people's minds in a literal sense, because she's something, someone different, someone kind of other. And I think people therefore consciously or subconsciously do kind of 
view incidents a little bit differently. I also think it's worth noting that Naomi Osaka is a bit of a weird person. Like, and, and we saw that from the documentary. And I, I think, you know, she's pretty unusual, uh, to say the least. She doesn't have a lot of friends. She, she spends a lot of time on her phone. You know, she is a real introvert. And I think every, everyone's going to find that difficult to connect with. You know, that there are people who we can think of through tennis who are extroverts. You know, Andy Roddick or... Um, I guess to a certain extent, Novak Djokovic. Uh, and, and those people kind of live on the outside. That's what the word means, right? And so they're easier to connect with, negatively or positively, in whichever way. But with people like Roger Federer to a certain extent, um, Andy Murray to a massive extent, I, I think Andy Murray's public opinion was very low five or six years ago, certainly in England. Um, and I think with Osaka, it's going to take a long time for people to to warm to her because she's, as I say, an introvert and she does find it difficult to communicate with people. You can see that in almost every facet of her life. Just to give my own view on it, and I know you both disagree with this, I wouldn't have asked that question in that press conference. I, I don't ag agree that press conferences should be easy. I think it's important to hold athletes to account. I know they're not publicly elected officials, but it is sort of our job. Um, but for once and on one occasion, I'd have given her a free pass. I, I don't. I don't actually disagree with that. I think the other the other kind of interesting point of this is that it, is the question actually kind of uh, does it make sense? Like, is it? I think it kind of actually loses the fact that they're completely different things as well this kind of experience. i think i mean he asked it so many different ways and what he was trying to say was what everyone who hates nomi osaka has said in the last six months which is how dare you refuse to talk to the media when you make millions of dollars out of the media and yeah, if he'd wanted to be aggressive pick, i suppose go on or cherry pick i suppose is another way that people might phrase it yeah yeah exactly um, and, you know, that is what a lot of people have been saying. And I think he toned it off quite nicely. And that is that is that is the question she probably didn't realise she was going to get. And probably the question she has to answer internally. Should she have realised? Do we think this is poor preparation? I mean, like, you've got a team around her. Could you... I, I know we... I, I actually kind of broadly agree with you that the first one wasn't necessarily the question to ask. But it seems kind of strange to me that... I'm not saying I want her media trained in terms of saying nothing, but the idea that she was caught cold by that question seems kind of bizarre to me. You know, it's not like that out there a question, whether we agree with its premise or not. I mean, it, it was always going to be put to her by a certain section of the media. I, I think there's, there's still an, another sort of side to it that I'd still, it still hangs over me and I'm, I'm speculating here. I don't know, but I think that a uh, uh, management team are involved in this. I think it was their decision from the start that they didn't want her to do press conferences. That suits her, as we said at the time, where it suits them to cut out the middleman of the press and they want to talk, they want to release everything on social media. And I think it was them who wanted her to stop doing press conferences. So they put the, the initial, they put the initial thing out. And I think there's a chance that she's now just feels like she's caught in the middle of it all. And she's always, because before this, she's always seemed quite natural in the press conferences when she's speaking. It's never stood out as something that she hates doing. And I know for a fact through the, my mates and people who I know who work in that line of work that they would prefer it if their athletes didn't talk to the media at all on things that they can and answer questions that they can't control. Yeah. They quite like doing interviews where they can, where they get copy on it. And that kind of thing, but I don't think they particularly enjoy doing press conferences. And I think that they're, I think, I do think her management team tried a fast one of right, she's big enough now, we can get away with this. Because let's not forget that in the initial statement, when she said she didn't want to do press conferences, they never mentioned mental health or anything like that. They just said she wasn't going to be doing them. So, so she didn't, she didn't want the, the people putting doubt in her mind, right? Is that yeah, right, George? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, for, what it, for what it's worth, my understanding of the situation is it's the complete opposite. So in terms of the initial statement was very Osaka written, not approved. They didn't want it out um, in that form. 
and the second right. statement was more i don't want to say crafted but like more helped to structure to get the point across more clearly and so what do you, so george if it, like you've obviously been speaking to team osaka a bit um do you think they would prefer to go back to like before the looking glass you know to, to, to cross back across the rubicon i think there's an acceptance that a lot of it wouldn't have happened how it has had the second statement been the first one which i think we right, all, okay yeah which i think we can all agree with actually like i don't think yeah possibly rounded thing because if you think about the initial first statement there was this idea that the media kicks you when it's down in a press conference which to be honest as we said at the time it, particularly in osaka's case is like demonstrably untrue i mean as we've said before i mean her press conferences were great they were really friendly she was a really growing superstar and there'd never been any friction and you know there's never been this kind of negative energy at all and i think if, yeah. she, if she had come out and said look i'm really struggling with my mental health i need a break i'm finding anxiety i'm getting anxiety from from this situation yeah um i i, I mean i can't be 100 sure but i think there would have been more of an acceptance certainly than the narrative that it's the media's fault and putting the blame on them rather than kind of the, and, yeah. and maybe the blame is on them. I'm not, I'm not saying they're absolved from blame, but the, the initial statement was clumsy at best, I thought. Yeah. I, I kind of want to, I mean, we're sort of starting to go over old ground a little bit here. So we'll maybe draw a little line under it in a moment, but people do talk about it a lot and I think it's valid. Uh, we talk about her management and these press conferences and I note that she's still doing cover shoots She's still doing, you know, big fashion shoots. And this may well be driven by her. I know it's a big passion of hers. But the thing I took away from the Osaka documentary is how much, how demanding it is on her time. And, you know, photo shoots are not easy. You don't just stand there and people take photos of you. You're constantly getting dressed and redressed and asked to, like, move around and do this and do that. And, oh, could you just do a little video message for this? And, you know, she did so much last year, uh, you know, while also moving house and like the pandemic and everything that goes with that. And I feel like she's so overexposed, not in a marketing sense, but in a human sense. You know, there's a great line in um, The Hobbit, which uh, when Bilbo's at Rivendell after he gives up the ring and he says to Frodo, I'm, I'm going to the Undying Lands because I just feel stretched, you know, like, like butter spread over too much bread. And I wonder, and it feels to me like Osaka got to a point where she was like, I am just stretched here beyond, and like, I can't even think about tennis, never mind everything else that goes with being a top tennis player. So I suppose uh, what I'm trying to say is I still do feel sympathetic with her, and I struggle to hate her in the same way that a lot of people find it very easy to hate her, because I think there's so much more to her than that, and, and actually th there's a lot more going on than just her trying to be a professional tennis player, Calvin. I think the last thing on it is like, yeah, I've just wondered to myself there, like, do when you say that a lot of people hate her, right? Do do the public actually, or is it because of the line that we work in that we I guess you guys work more in, in the media and I see a lot more, and Piers Morgan is like a big voice and he's ranting on with his garbage all the time. But does like the man on the street, one, do they do they hate her? I don't think they do. And do they actually care about her relationship with the media? Like, are they just, or do they just think, you know, is, is that question even relevant, really, that was asked? Because, like, do people want to read, in an interview, do you want to read about her relationship with the media or just want to read about uh, what she thinks about tennis or life in general? Or is it, I, I just think maybe there's a bit of a bubble going on here that, that you know, does anyone care? I think it's a totally <laughs> legitimate question. I mean, I, I would say, to be fair, I, I think this story has cut through. I mean, it's always anecdotal where I talk about this, but when people who actively do not follow tennis start talking to me about a story, and it's pretty rare that actually happens, uh, this is definitely one of them that people seem, maybe less so this week, but the original one back in April, um, April, May, June, probably June, wasn't it? May? Well, May, but we're in French Open, May. Yeah. Um, you know, it definitely did hit the public psyche um yeah just going back to your point about how overexposed is interestingly i again apparently it's entirely her own drive in terms of she 
she but you so you're you're getting that from her team right and, yeah, but, and they of course I, I, would I, I, say I, that I, I said, I, yeah i agree but it is quite interesting that it was kind of framed to me that she almost wants the distraction so she's not alone with herself so much which again is quite an interesting aspect to the further mental health side of things that actually like sitting around overthinking can kind of leave you down a dark hole i think people like curios has maybe touched on that before where you know it's always very easy all i'm saying is it's very easy to sit outside and say you know she's doing this wrong she's doing that wrong i'm not saying you were saying she's doing it wrong but it's easy to kind yeah. of try and paint a full picture we don't have the full picture I and mean, there's no way we can ever have the full picture of what it is that drives her or what what she wants to do or how she's feeling but you know I, i've to just echo your point i find her internally fascinating i think she's a brilliant athlete she's a really interesting character um and my one hope is that this doesn't end up being a permanently toxic thing that the point i was trying to make before about her winning it I think to a degree would kind of silent not and I'm not saying it ends it or it not ends the toxicity but just as a it draws a slight line under it where it's like yeah I can still be this amazing player I should be as soon as it's then going to suddenly become this distraction or you know she can't compete because she's created this you know she's not driven enough anymore because she's too woke or whatever you know that sort of nonsense yeah I think there would be I'm not saying I necessarily want her to win more than anyone else, but, you know, it would be nice to draw a bit of a line under it. The, the, the last thing I'll say on, on that is, is when we're talking about the endorsements is that my mate, who best mate who works in that field, his position is always the same, that somebody as big as Osaka and with the people she's working with who are professionals, that she won't be doing anything that she doesn't want to do. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That she, He said he, his position is that, even if there's there's one day if she doesn't want to do something, she will just say it and it'll get put back to another day. So the idea that I think came around originally that she was being pushed into doing endorsements and photo shoots that she didn't want to do, he says that would be completely impossible. That would not happen at her level. Yeah. Interesting. Um, as always, Naomi Osaka provides us with plenty to talk about. Uh, there's almost never a dull week when she is either playing or talking. I mean, we should talk about her tennis, I suppose. Um, she she got beaten by Jill Teichman. Who is Jill Teichman? Well, she beat Osaka. She beat Olympic gold medalist and fellow Swiss player Belinda Bencic. She beat Pliskova two and then lost in the final to Ash Barty. Um, I mean, George, well, I'm Jill Teichman. Huh? Yeah, she had a really impressive start to the year, actually. Put quite a few results together on the hard courts. Um, she's... Yeah, don't get me wrong. I was surprised to see her do this well and beat that level of opposition back to back to back. Um, but she's capable. Um, you know, in the end, Barty kind of dealt with her pretty swiftly. Um, I'm definitely surprised Osaka lost that match. Maybe Pliskova and Bencic's levels are up and down enough to kind of open the door. But um, as Naomi said, you know, from her side, it's better to deal with this stuff before a grand slam and try and peek for it than not but yeah she said it's really interesting she said she's almost glad that she lost because she's got a couple of things she really wants to work on i mean calvin from a coaching perspective can, can you relate to that when she says she'd rather spend effectively she's saying she'd rather spend three days specifically training on something than a couple of extra matches I, I can't really buy into that, if I'm honest. Um, I think this close to a tournament, the the place to work on those things would be in matches, especially this close to such a big tournament as the US Open. I don't really... Because all that's going to happen is you're going to... If, if you've lost confidence in something like that and you're going to go and work on it specifically in practice, you're, it's then going to be an issue when you get into a match. There, there's different stages of developing something and you wouldn't have that long. I don't know what it is that she wants to work on, but anything that's going to be relevant is going to come around in a match and she's going to work on it. So I think it was probably trying to see the bright side of it there. I, I don't think that she'd have wanted to go out, if I'm honest. It'd be interesting if it was a... Uh, I haven't actually watched the full conference on this, but it'd be interesting if it was more of a technical point or a, a general mental point. For the things I'd read, I kind of was... I thought it was more of a... I'd rather this happen now that the things outside the court perhaps were affecting me more than they should and kind of get my head right for a slam. But I, I, I'm not 100% sure if, if I've misread into that, but 
she perhaps didn't elaborate on that either way. I watched the last set of her match with Goff, and she was phenomenal in that. The match as a whole apparently wasn't great. I saw ups and downs on it, but I didn't see anything in her third set that she was. I was thinking that's a gaping hole in her game. She's going to have to go and work on that. Um, it was pretty good, the last mm. set. I mean, she when she plays her best is comfortably the best hardcore out there. Yeah. It? So there's, there's not that much to work on. Um, but yeah, yeah, we'll see where she is next week, I suppose. Just just to tell you what exactly what she said. She said, uh, I would say even for me, even though she played really well, Jill Teichman, I know that there are a lot of things I need to fix within my game. So in a weird way, I'm kind of glad that I lost because there are so many things that I want to fix before New York. So we shall see exactly what those things are and how they um, shake down. We'll find out who she plays in the first round at 5 p.m. UK time on Thursday, um, despite the fact that I spent the whole week last week looking on the internet for details of when the draw was, um, was told Friday and by almost everyone, and then emailed the US Open. They promptly said it's on Thursday, you idiot. Like I was supposed to know, even though they haven't write, written it down anywhere. But anyway, it's my personal gripe out of the way. Um, in, on the men's side of things, it was... Maybe not an equally dramatic week, but certainly uh, plenty to get our teeth into. Plenty for Daniil Medvedev to get his shoe into as well. Uh, this is probably the most viral moment of the week, I suspect, uh, as Daniil Medvedev kicked a cameraman, um, or kicked a camera, sorry, which then knocked over the camera operator. Uh, I thought it was in stark contrast to some Spanish football I saw where... Uh, a camera operator was knocked over and then the game was delayed while every player on the pitch uh, helped her get back up and get set up again. George, these cameras, right? I, I'm trying to think if I've seen it at other tournaments. They are on the court, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're kind of around the back um, on the court, yeah. Um, I mean, I find that in itself pretty mad. I don't see why they couldn't be in the stands or some sort of kind of railing around it. Um, they were... There were a few things I saw on social media of them testing a new angle. I don't know if it, well, I don't know if it was testing or something they've done before, but there was a new kind of lower shot angle that was quite cool actually in terms of you could see. There's about four accounts on Twitter that obsess about what what camera angle is used for which yeah. tournament. It, it, they, they, I mean, this wasn't the main one they were using for broadcast, but they did have angles where they were almost kind of level with the net, and you could really see the spin and. And, yeah. you know we've kind of spoken a bit before about how like appreciating Djokovic perhaps is really hard on television because you can't see what he's doing with the ball it just looks like this bloke's just tapping it over and over and over because you can't kind of see the spins and everything else that comes with it um so from that angle it was quite cool I think it was a clip of Sissipat I saw we had a point he actually lost sending him but the the balls they were taking and the aggression they were using was quite quite interesting I, I still don't see why they couldn't have pulled that back a couple of meters and still had that angle but i'm no camera expert um but yeah i mean it was it was crazy i mean i should he have been disqualified well i i mean i was pretty surprised he wasn't um i don't know the exact rules on it but the, the thing that was pretty bad about it was that the cameraman was sat kind of right behind the camera still when he's booted it and it, it, you know, it could have been pretty serious, actually. Yeah. If the had knocked the camera into the... The cameraman had actually, like, ducked down to pick or pick something or pick something up that had been knocked over in the initial fall. <laughs> and if he'd toppled that camera over again and that lands on the ca cameraman, I mean, it's more than just disqualification. <laughs> yeah. looking at, like, months and months of banning. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it was absolutely astonishing. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Mm. And you said it, it looked a bit like he kind of lost his lost his way a bit in that match and, and lost his temper and temperament. I mean, I'm kind of intrigued by Medvedev as a mental character. And I was talking to to kind of Rosets Greg Rosetsky on Monday about this, and he was saying how much he enjoys him and how much of a character he is. And he clearly is a bit of an extrovert, you know, in stark contrast to, to Naomi Osaka. I mean, I guess he's good for the game, isn't he? Okay, we don't want to see him kicking a cameraman, Calvin, but he's the kind of guy that's pretty enjoyable on a number of levels. Yeah, he's he's enjoyable all, all the way. I mean, he was just, when I was at Wimbledon earlier this year. I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm dropping names there, but um, <laughs> he was by of the of the top players. He was by far the most amiable. He was just kind of walking around on his own with his racket bag on his back, chatting to anybody who wanted to chat. I was in the gym one of the days and one of the sort of less interesting Euros matches was on. 
and he had a quick chat with me for about 90 seconds and he was just wandering around every day just chatting to anybody he's he's fine i didn't see any issue with it. i thought it's been kind of i thought it was a great picture there's great uh, people <laughs> talking about it and as we know there was, there was a certain person who was outraged by it um but i you know it was good fun i thought like so what the camera was in the way let him yeah. do what he wants we're, we're wanting more personality less robots more reactions to stuff like like go for it no issue yeah. with it no one was hurt and like me you know we talk about role models like we, we don't want kids seeing stuff like that what, what <laughs> are kids gonna start kicking over the cameras in the back of their, <laughs> the back of their mini green matches are they i mean yeah so what and it's also i mean the role model thing falls down a bit when you consider that the most famous tennis player probably of the entire 20th century was john mcenroe it's not like we raised a generation of tennis players to smash rackets maybe that falls down i don't know yeah. Um, but kind of on a tennis front, again, without getting bogged down in non-tennis stuff, Daniel Medvedev has been the best hardcore player probably over the summer um, in the men's game. And we thought that he would cruise Cincinnati just as he did in Toronto, but he was undone in the semi-final by Andre Rublev. Calvin, you often talk about how Rublev doesn't pick up big wins against you know, skillful players. And I know we don't think Daniel Medvedev is the most skillful, but he's still good. Um, do, do you see this as a significant result for Rublev to go and beat Medvedev and from a set down? He started doing it a lot more, hasn't he? started doing it quite a bit more. He's had a couple, I think, hasn't he, of players who he's beaten. Did he beat Sitsipas not long ago? Um, yeah, I think a, maybe. Beat Nadal, obviously, on clay. Yeah, yeah beating Nadal. So I think maybe he's got rid of that title a little bit, I'd say. Um, still the same with all of these players. They've got to show that they can do it at a slam, I suppose. Um Biggest one of that's Verev. I think he's on great form. Can he do it over five? But, um, you know, there's still only really team that's done it, I think, um, repeatedly. But And he's a bit older than the rest of them. But, yeah, I think, you know, Rublev, he's kind of um, losing that tag that I'd put on him, that he, he tends to beat everybody outside the top eight and no one inside it. You can't really label that at him anymore. Uh, just, just to take the opposition view on this one, there is no way he wins that match if that camera thing doesn't happen. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, was, I was watching it and Medvedev was killing him. I think it happened like one all in the second set or something. Um, and even, you know, Medvedev's obviously like saying, oh, I could have broke my hand. I'm going to sue the organization. You know, he completely lost his head and it was still pretty close, even though Medvedev was having this full on meltdown. And there were, there were a few games where Rublev was still like, he was serving for the second set and it needed about eight juices to get over the line. There was, you could still sense the nerves. And, you know, obviously you get freed up once you have those wins. And in his own mind, he'll be thinking, yeah, I've just beaten Medvedev. I've ended this big run of five defeats or whatever um, in the professional game. But my, my own viewpoint is that there was no way he was winning it until that bonkers situation that you can't really bank on. <laughs> the interesting thing with Rublev in that is that, like, normally when, when the players... They, they have results where they're beating everyone lower them and no one higher. It's normally a belief thing. Like, do they really believe they can do it? But Rublev isn't like that. He 100% thinks that he should be beating everybody he plays all the time. Yeah. I think the problem with him is like maybe he just doesn't have enough variation in his locker. His, his plan A is phenomenal. He hits the ball remarkably hard. Yeah. Um, and he's full out. He's intense. There's no let up with him. There's just not kind of not much else there. On top of that, I guess Medvedev kind of plays quite similar, to be fair, but he has a better serve than Rublev does. Uh, to kind of talking of um, mental breakdowns and, you know, the mental side of the game, I thought it was interesting in the other semi-final that there was also a, an interruption and it's become a pretty significant feature of Stefanos Tsitsipas's game now to take really long bathroom breaks at the end of sets. I think the one against Zverev was as many as six minutes. Uh, I think it was eight. Eight, crikey. Uh, to the extent that someone just went looking for him, which I, I kind of like the idea that someone went and knocked on the toilet door and was like, Steph? Steph? Are you okay? You know, like you do at school. Um, and he eventually returned. I mean, you know, Zverev still won, and he obviously won the title in Cincinnati, and, and good for him. But... I mean, it, it is starting to, for want of a better phrase, take the piss a little bit, isn't it? Um, I, 
if if you want, I have a little kind of story about a toilet break in, in tennis uh, from my coaching career. So there was a few, few few years ago, I was coaching a lad who was pretty decent. He was, he was national level. I think he might be national number one under twelves. And he was playing a match with another lad who was the same age. He was quite a different lad, quite a sort of. He was a funny lad, funny funny kid. And um, they've just finished the first set, and uh, the lad who I coached was was won the first set on a tie break. And the other lad's gone for a, tie, a toilet break. But the only people who were left in the building at this stage were, was me, both parents' mums, both both kids' mums, and the referee, who was a lady. So he'd been in the toilet for about seven or eight minutes, and he still hadn't come out. And the toilet was in the changing room. So I had to go. The ref asked me if I can go into the male changing room and see what he's doing. So I went in there, and he just sat on one of the benches. And I was like, uh, so how's it going? He was like, just nodded. And I was like... Come on, are you coming back out? You played really well there. And he goes, um, he goes, yeah, I know I did. Played the best I possibly could. And he still won the set. So what's the point of me coming back out? <laughs> I was like, he's made a fair point. <laughs> like, uh, I love that this is an 11 year old saying that as well. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal. I'm yeah. quite intrigued to know if, I, I don't know if you can remember his name, if said 11 year old has gone on to. To greater things. He's a lad called Andre, and at the same I've got a, another quick story. It's nothing really to do with it. It's still one of the best things I've ever seen on a tennis court. He got defaulted at match point up once. Um, wow. He, he was playing a match, and he had, in a match tiebreak, I think he had 9-5, and then he lost that point and got and swore and got a, a, a warning, and then he got another... He got another um, he, he he lost another couple of points and got point deduction, so that took it to nine seven, I think. <clears throat> then he lost the next point, so it was nine eight, and the referee could see him about to explode, and he went on and said, "Andre, you can't say anything now. I'll throw your racket because the next one is game, and this obviously has to be the last game." And he calmed himself down, and then just as the referee walked off, he shouted a word that began with B. <laughs> and he had to get defaulted at nine eight up in a champions tiebreak, <laughs> which was was just brilliant. But um, um, a character. Yeah, Stefan Sissipas takes too long in the toilet. Um, that's that yeah, one. needs needs more fibre in his diet or something. Yeah, George. Yeah, I mean these these long breaks have long been kind of this uh, big issue. I, I'm kind of of the opinion that now we just schedule in a break at the end of maybe two sets and a best of three or two sets and end of four sets and a best of five set match and cut out the changeovers or something and just kind of have continuous play it's a bit more like half time or you know end of a quarter in a kind of more uh, in other sports that's what i'm trying to say um and tv know what's happening and then this 10 minutes isn't such a big issue because i think at the minute you've just got this weird 10 minute break where the players who's left on the court is getting really annoyed. The player who's going off is probably doing it to wind them up a little bit, to be honest, um, or, you know, clear their own head. You know, it's definitely a mind game thing. Um, and TV's kind of left sat there, just like, oh, we've got these time to fill. We don't know when they're coming back on. I kind of think the, the trick is actually just structure it in. And by cutting out the changeovers, you're reducing the time generally because they take two minutes or whatever. So one 10 minute break at the end of two sets is a lot quicker than whatever, five, 10. Yeah, I think, I think I'd be, I think I agree with you actually, which I wasn't expecting. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to be said for just saying, and, and you know, you mentioned TV there and we've just had um, a cricket tournament here in the UK called the hundred, which is kind of built for TV and, and the whole time slot was created for TV. It turns out it's actually not any quicker, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and I know Colin Cowherd, who's a big podcaster in the US, talks a lot about having a two-hour product and being able to know when it finishes. I mean, I'd be quite in favor of sacking off all extended breaks in tennis and just saying, right, after an hour, you get a five-minute break. And I don't care if it's like five, six in the first set, like go and have a five-minute break. Why not? And as you say, George, for TV, it would create a lot more. I get really annoyed with boxing. And boxing and tennis are probably the two worst sports for it of not knowing when stuff's going to happen. You know, people text me on a Saturday and going, oh, do you know what time Dylan White's fighting tonight? I'm like, well, he might be fighting about 10.15. Mm -hmm. 
They'll try and do it then, but it could be earlier. It could be later, and it's much worse than the US, Calvin. Yeah, I, I think the, the problem with this as well is it's like it's the toilet. They're called toilet breaks, but basically, like about five percent of them are actually to go to the toilet. Yeah, like, especially in the men's. It, it, it's just it, it's a nonsense, and it's also and this goes right down the levels. It's the same players who do it. City Pass does it all the time. They know it's coming. You know, if he loses a set, he's going to disappear off to the toilet. Yeah. And uh, something needs to be done with that. And they have tried changing it. They have tried saying it's it's one now. You get one toilet break, but you can just wait while you lose a set, especially in best of three. Wait while you lose a set and then go to the toilet. I mean, Sissipas is pretty open. He does it in his defence. I mean, he just says, "I sweat loads and I need an entire change of clothes," which kind of sounds fair enough. I mean, I, I, I'm taking that fully at face value and I'm, I'm not, you know, Zverev's kind of accusing him of going off court with his phone and texting his dad and you can see his dad in the stand pressing all these buttons. So, you know, I, I'm not accusing anyone of anything there, but you know, if he is, if it is the case, he is sweating completely through. That, that seems kind of fair enough to me. But as I'm saying, I, I kind of just think it's such a hard thing to regulate that why not just put in a blanket rule, cut out these other changeovers, keep the time going, you schedule something, people know what's going on, people in the stands can go out, know that's their time to go out and grab a burger or whatever. Um, I, I just you that... always say this, George, you always say like, well, oh, people go out and grab a burger. I've never seen anyone eating a burger at the tennis. Like no. football, absolutely. I have never seen uh, like anyone ever eating a burger. <laughs> they do it at the US Open. They go out for a burger. So maybe right, that's okay. I'm I, I, I do think for te- I think for tennis as a viewing sport, I do think on TV, the, the change events are quite important. It gives the, the the pundits a bit of time to explain what's going on. That kind of thing. But again, I, I kind of see it as sometimes. It, feels a bit rushed or like the pundits it really annoys me actually when the pundits are speaking over like the player talking to the umpire that's what i want to hear yeah. you know that conversation I'd, I'd almost cut that and then have this 10 minute break like half time in football where they and and oh yeah they can that set d- doing some actual analysis that's pretty good you know like how would how would the players like if you said to a player right you're going to play a set of tennis with no sit down like how would a player respond to that i think Again, I think it depends where it was. I think if it's an indoor tournament in Britain, I don't think any problem at all. But I think if you're playing in 33-degree heat somewhere, then it's tough to just keep walking around the other end and that kind of thing. Um, Mm. That would make it a little bit more difficult. I think there's other ways you can do it. I mean, I'd definitely get rid of the warm-up. It's the only sport where you get to have a little bit of a warm-up once you... (laughs) Once you imagine, bo- imagine, like, imagine boxing to compare it again, they just do a little spa session like, 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 before the match starts, or, or football, like both teams get a little passing going between themselves. Five side in their own half, or something. Yeah, yeah, it's ludicrous that, that because, they- of course, I mean, what people may not know if they haven't been to much live tennis or that the players have already warmed up, you know, half an hour before, right. Yeah, I, I think the, on, the only difficulty with that is in certain circumstances, if you're on in the middle of the, say if you're third on or fourth on, it could be, and it's an indoor and they don't have, at lower down the tournaments, they don't have so many practice courts. Yeah, You could have not hit any balls for, you know, for four hours. Whereas yeah. if you're first on, you can do it just before. I mean, I think that's... Right. A bit of an issue, especially if you don't know when you're going on. But I don't think that's enough of an issue to not do it. I don't think they should have warm-ups. That, that just reminded me of that time that um, the Australian Open final where Federer knew they were going to be playing indoors and Chile just didn't. He played that first set like he'd never played <laughs> indoors. <laughs> <laughs> Federer is just perfectly adapted. Um, yeah. But I, I think that's quite interesting, isn't it? You see who's like a fast starter, who's... Hot and cold a bit more. Yeah, I, it's, it's a good time. They should be banned from warming up on site full stop and just have to. They were only allowed. <laughs> the thing is, though, I, I actually don't think it would make any difference at yeah, all. No, no, you no, have no, to warm no. yourself, but it's like the thing with like players get into this like obsession with that they need to hit the day of the match for yeah. like, half an hour, and that hit is that I look. I do it. Players who I work with now always want to hit, and in my, in my experience, it makes zero difference if. If you looked at like the matches that they've won and lost after, sometimes you can't get a hit if it's raining or something like that. You, you sometimes can't get a hit and it's made zero difference. But players all the time, they become obsessed with it. They need this, this half hour hit 
like on the morning of the match and it used to be this thing where like one of the a girl who I used to coach her mum was obsessed with it they need to get even if she was like on at four o'clock in the afternoon and there was no practice courts other than 7 30 in the morning she'd have to go for that 7 30 in the morning slot just to hit and I'd try explaining that that's like the same as like hitting the night before if you're on at nine it's like, like the same sort of distance in time but it makes it, you would get no difference without warm-ups at all yeah well that's another thing for when love tennis podcast rules the world tennis will look very different um we've ended up kind of not getting through very much uh stuff here but we, we did do a poll uh on twitter asking our followers who they thought of the what i describe as the hardcore pretenders uh, which sort of sounds like a weird prog rock band now that I think about it. Um, who of the hardcore pretenders will go the furthest at the US Open? Uh, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev or Rublev? Kind of predictably, given the results of the last couple of weeks, um, Medvedev came out 54% winner, Zverev 36%, then almost no support for, for Tsitsipas or Rublev. I mean, would either of you be tempted to, to put Zverev ahead of Medvedev in terms of kind of form book? The reason I wouldn't put my head of Medvedev um, is simply that we know Medvedev's on the other side of Djokovic. Yeah. So if Zverev ends up on the same side as Medvedev, that becomes a lot more... I, I, I still actually do lean to Medvedev on that, but it's around 51-49 now. But yeah. given we know he's not on Djokovic's side, if the question is who goes further, if Zverev ends up on the Djokovic side, the likelihood is he still loses that over five sets and Medvedev beats the other half of the field. So that's that's my yeah. I'd have I'd have Medvedev, I think Medvedev has the edge, but I think Med, I think Zverev has more chance of beating Djokovic than Medvedev does. That because doesn't he, mean before he, any, before anyone jumps me, that doesn't mean that I think Medvedev. <laughs> I don't think Zverev is going to beat Djokovic. I I definitely give him more chance because he's done it a whole lot more. He's, he's getting to the stage now where he's like he's getting sort of team levels with Djokovic where it's about 50-50 between them. Zverev's playing really, really well at the minute. I mean, if he, the big question is, is he going to bring it over five sets? Can he make it last? Because at three sets tennis, he's back to what he was in 2017-18 where he was regularly beating guys like Rafa and Novak at big Masters events. And that was more when Novak and Rafa were a bit more bothered about those. But I think his game's way more complete now. Um, it seems like the serves kind of solved itself. I don't want to jump on that too quickly, but it seems... I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that the only reason he didn't win the US Open last year was his second serve was terrible. And it's not terrible anymore. So even if he plays like he did last year and had a second serve, he'd, he'd be in really good shape, and he is. Yeah. Mm. But he doesn't have team to beat Medvedev, and he doesn't... He probably won't have Novak knocking himself out by taking out a line judge. So I still think think the two best players is going to be a tough challenge for him over five. If 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 Zverev plays um, Djokovic in the semis, yeah, um, I think that's the the closest that Djokovic will. That's one of the closest matches to predict that Djokovic has had in a Slam this year. I think in the current form, if Zverev in current form gets to the semis. I think that's, I'd make Djokovic 55% favourite, I, I think. think. The, the obvious match that we'd have said the other way is Nadal would be 55, 60, 40 to Djokovic on the clay, realistically. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. But every other match. And, and to be fair, actually, in the Australian Open final at the time, Medvedev was on a 20-match yeah. winning streak. That, that felt different. way closer than it was. And that, yeah. that's kind of what I think about Djokovic at slams, is that it is a different beast to this kind of best of three. So it'll be interesting, but Zvera's playing amazing stuff at the minute. So not you're going into different realms, though. He's going for the slam. He's going for the grand slam. So it's not beyond Djokovic to get a bit tight. Um, yeah, he does. And lately, especially, he's got tight. You know, I mean, think about Wimbledon, George. Those second serves, he was lobbing in at 70 miles an hour. The, the thing is, with him and getting tight, though, I, I feel like he's got enough time to correct himself over best of five. I feel like the nerves come kind of earlier in matches for him in best of five and then he kind of relaxes yeah but that he, thinks they're ahead but but if Zverev, you're playing with Zverev fire is, there though aren't you? you you are you are and but i think Zverev can take the match out of his hands as well as anyone at the minute like he's he's dominating him on the baseline when they're playing at the, yeah. he's uh, the one player he won't want to play he won't want to play Zverev. if you said if you could take one player out of the draw now it'd be Zverev. 
And I think he'll really want Zverev on that other side with Medvedev. So at least he's not going to go through both of them. But so they right. don't, or, or they doesn't have to play Zverev in like the quarterfinals. I'm just trying to think what, what Zverev can. Yeah, I can only meet him in the semis because. Yeah, I, was, I, I could because so many people have pulled out. I can't work out. He, like, he's, can't... he's well number four now, anyway. But I, I know he wouldn't have been seeded like that anyway. But yes, yeah. he's, he's there by right now. To be fair to him. Casper yeah. Rude is now number eight seed. I yeah. can't really get my head around that. Um, but anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, we should uh, have a quick chat about Emma Raducanu. Um, she's had another sort of stellar week, a career week, you might say. Um, she got to the final up in Chicago in the Challenger tournament there. Uh, she beat Clara Burrell, Alison Van Uytvenk, the world number 65 at the time, I think she was, um, which is a big win for her. Uh, and then she she did lose in the final to Clara Torson, who, who's had some pretty good results this year as well. Uh, but nevertheless, a, a really good run. Uh, she'll be up to a career high. Am I right in saying she's up to with 150 in the world now? Um, George, that's a, a cracking little run for her, isn't it? And she's in, she's in the US Open qualifying tomorrow. Yeah, it's um, really impressive. I mean, I, I was slightly surprised when she kind of a, decided not to go forward with Nigel Sears after the run at Wimbledon, given how much of a surprise that was. And that was like a short-term thing. You kind of thought, well, that clearly works. Let's kind of carry on. But she quickly went back to kind of her former coach. Um, you know, look, I, I think she's a brilliant player and got great potential. I know Calvin agrees with that less, but uh, it's she, she's proving she's willing to go into these challenges and make it happen. And I hope she, hopefully she qualifies. I think um, potential player she might have to play is Maya Sharif. Um, yeah, I was just having a look at her, her qualifying draw. If that's the case, that'll, that'll be a good, tough battle for her to come through. But who knows? She's, you know, these players aren't ranked high enough for a reason. So there's no one she can't be in qualifying. To clarify, I, I don't know if you stick me in it a bit there, but I disagree with it less. I think she's a phenomenal player. She's a phenomenal talent. She's definitely the, the biggest talent of her generation in Britain, maybe for like, a couple of generations, I'd say. I think she'll definitely make top 30, at least. But as was shown the other day, I think it's a bit... What I don't understand is the, and she's only 18 idea in women's yeah. tennis, which which isn't really a clean cut if it is immense. Like, she lost to another 18-year-old the other day, and there are several other 18-year-olds who are already ranked above her, and in the last couple of years have been in the latter stages of slams at 18. Yeah, and I guess the, the defence for Raducanu there is that she's a far less experienced 18-year-old than Towson in terms of being on the tour, yes. being around yeah. and whatever. But she's the, if, For reference, she's the uh, world number 10 in the teenage rankings. Uh, there are nine teenagers ranked higher than her in the world. Yeah, I'm not going to make you name them, George. I, I can see you. I mean, you, couldn't, you, could, you would have got like four or five of them. To, to, you know. Go on then, have a go. Um, Who's number one? Goff. Goff. Oh, it's G number one, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Goff, Towson, um, still all teenagers or just yeah. 18 and under? All teenagers. What's your hand up for? You've oh, got oh, two oh. so far. Is Fernandez still a teenager? Yeah, yeah, Leila Fernandez. That's three. Burrell, is she? Yeah, Clara Burrell is not. I think she turned 20, to be fair. Yeah, I think she's 20. Anisimova, she's the left. Yeah, Amanda Anisimova, she's the number four teenager in the world. Potapova? Uh, not Potapova. She's 20. Yeah, I think she's 21, actually. I think Yastremska's turned 20 now as well. Yeah, yeah. I'll put you out of your misery because this isn't great radio. Um, uh, Maria Camelia Osorio Serrano. Ah, Favourite of fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Catherine McAnally, Kaka Goff's doubles partner. Uh, Camila Rakimova, who is a 19-year-old Russian that I've never heard of. She's 134 in the world. And then Jinyu Wang, who's 135 in the world, who I've also never heard of. There you go. If you got those at home before George and Calvin, congratulations. Um, it probably wasn't too much of a challenge. Uh, we will be tight on those last two. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, yeah, I don't think there was any rope in uh, going for those. Um, we will be back, hopefully on Sunday, uh, to preview fantasy tennis. I will try and get that into shape 
on Friday. I make no promises because I'm at the cricket on Thursday. Um, but yes, uh, you will be able to enter your teams over the weekend for sure. Um, as always, follow us on, at, on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod if you want all the updates on that, how to enter, what the rules are. They are going to be the exact same as at Wimbledon, um, barring any technical hiccups. And we will, of course, post our own teams as well. Your usual challenge is to beat any of us. It's not too hard. Um, there's no prizes. It's just for fun and for pride. Anyway, we'll be back on Sunday. Sports Social Podcast Network.